Good morning. My name is Marcia or Marcia, whichever you prefer. Uh, today's reading comes from Esther chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. Please follow along in your Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's Esther chapter 1, starting with verse 5. Following the reading, I invite you to respond and worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in kindergarten through second grade, you are invited to escort your kids to the front of the room for kids common outside. As you are able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's word. Hear the word of the Lord. When it was all over, the king gave a banquet for all the people from the greatest to the least who were in the fortress of Susa. It lasted for seven days and was held in the courtyard of the palace garden. The courtyard was beautifully decorated with white cotton curtains and blue hangings, which were fastened with white linen cords, white linen cords and purple ribbons to silver rings embedded in marble pillars. Gold and silver couches stood on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Drinks were served in gold goblets of many designs, and there was an abundance of royal wine reflecting the king's generosity. By edict of the king, no limits were placed on the drinking, for the king had instructed all his palace officials to serve each man as much as he wanted. At the same time, Queen Vashti gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. On the seventh day of the feast, when King Xerxes was in high spirits because of the wine, he told the seven eunuchs who attended him, Mehuman, Bizthfa, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zathar, and Carcass, to bring Queen Vashti to him with the royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze on her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. But when, but when they conveyed the king's order to Queen, Va Queen Vashti, she refused to come. This made the king furious, and he burned with anger. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's great to see everyone here this morning and to worship with you here today. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here at Haverhill Commons. I'm honored this morning to continue our series, Jubilee, Recalibrating for the Common Good. That's our series we're in, Recalibrating for the Common Good. We are five weeks in to this sermon series, and on behalf of the whole preaching team, um, I admit that these aren't fun sermons. <clears throat> They've not been fun for us to prep either, but I know that they're important, and I know that to be a church that resists society's abuses um, and the temptation to abuse our power, we've got to be willing to follow our Savior into some of these dark places because this is where Jesus goes, and to, in those dark places, learn a different song, learn a different way. A song that leads to life, not for just some people, but a song that leads to life for all people. And to learn that song requires a recalibration. We've got to hear how bad we sound, and then be open to God's empowering us to sound better. This week, we're going to look at another deep-seated aspect of society, one that has infected our relationships with each other and produced incredible pain and incredible brokenness. The words Marcia just read for us are pretty ugly words. They shed light on one of the uglier songs in human history, a song called Patriarchy. But before we get there and go there, I want to invite us to pause, to still our hearts, to ask the Lord to meet us in this place and to give us what we need for this moment. So please pause with me and open yourself to the Spirit. Jesus. 
Jesus, we are here with you. We know that you're here with us, and we know that you hear us, and you hear our hearts. I pray, Lord, that in our honesty this morning that you would begin or continue to heal us. I pray that you would heal us. It's in your spirits. It's by the power of the Spirit in the name of Jesus that we pray all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have a lot to cover, so we're just going to jump right into Esther 1 this morning. Um, this period of Jewish history that we're in right now is called the exile. This period is called the exile. The Jews have been conquered by other nations, and they've been removed from their homeland in Israel, and they've been taken captive to live as exiles in all of these foreign lands. Even when some Jews were allowed to return back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city there in the temple, others continued to live in these foreign nations where they were dispersed. So they're living in Babylonian cities, and then they're living in Persian cities, and eventually they'll be living in Roman cities. They're spread all over the Mediterranean. So that's why we have a bunch of Jews living in the capital city of Susa, which is the capital city of the empire of Persia in the 6th century BCE. We're going to pick up the story this morning with Persian king Xerxes. Xerxes. The same Xerxes who took the largest army ever formed up until that point and barely beat 300 Spartans at Thermopylae. So you guys might have remembered this movie that came out a little while ago, 300. It's not just a movie. That like actually really happened without the airbrushed abs, um, but everything else about it, totally historically accurate. Just kidding, it's not super accurate, but that happened. That event happened. The Persian army was defeated by the 300 Spartans. That's the Xerxes that we're talking about. In Esther 1, Xerxes has just taken the throne, and he wants to celebrate his new kingdom. He throws a giant banquet throughout the whole empire, which, by the way, stretches from India all the way to modern-day Turkey, so it's this gigantic swath of land. And he invites all the nobles and all the princes and all the military leaders to a 180-day party, all to celebrate and establish the wealth and splendor and power of Xerxes. Then, after the first party, he throws another party for all of the powerful elites that are just living in the capital city of Susa. And it lasted for seven days, this second party. It took place in these famous enclosed gardens of the king's palace. It involved the finest materials, the most exquisite mosaics. Here is one of the mosaics that we have found from Susa. The most precious items from all the land were collected and brought to be part of the celebration. The text tells us that every man present had his own personal golden goblet to drink out of. And the wine, it says, flowed freely. Verse 8, by the king's command, no limits were placed on the drinking, and each man drank as much as he wanted. Well, there you go. <laughs> Jaw-dropping wealth, opulence beyond compare, a bunch of the dudes just having a good old time. And while all the men are drinking as much as they wanted, we've got Queen Vashti holding a separate banquet for the women in her palace. The women get one verse, the men get nine. Scholars speculate that this second party might have even been a wedding celebration between Xerxes and Vashti. Uh, it bears all the hallmarks of an ancient wedding, a seven-day event, the quality of the decorations, the free flow of wine, and last but not least, a final and dramatic unveiling of the bride. You see, to cap off his bro week, Xerxes sends seven men to fetch Queen Vashti and bring her before him, quote, with a royal crown on her head. He wanted the nobles and all the other men to gaze upon her beauty, for she was a very beautiful woman. Now, if you're thinking that this doesn't sound like a lot of fun for Vashti, then you're catching the drift of what's about to happen. Most scholars interpret the wording here to mean that Vashti is to wear the royal crown on her head and nothing else. And the word gaze here is the same word translated display in verse 4. She is to be put on display, to be paraded in front of the men and gazed upon. 
a symbol of Xerxes' power. Vashti not honored as a queen, not treasured as a wife, not dignified as a woman, not treated like a person at all. She was treated like another one of Xerxes' possessions, like a beautiful goblet of gold. She was to be displayed and gazed upon and used by men for their enjoyment. It's a song that women everywhere know all too well. It's a song about exploitation and a song about objectification. It's a song called Patriarchy. And its enduring impact is the reason that Greta Gerwig is still making movies like Barbie today, where the men in charge make it their mission to put Barbie back into a box and to stay there under control where she can't disrupt the system. And the system is patriarchy. It's a system where men hold power and use it to keep women from holding power. Or as Dominique Gilliard says in his book, Subversive Witness, that we've used throughout this sermon series, he defines it as a system where men have, quote, the ability to punish and control and exploit female bodies. In Esther 1, a woman resists. When Queen Vashti heard the king's order, she refused to come. She refused. And this made the king furious, and he burned with anger. How dare she? And the rest of this passage that we didn't read this morning, all the rest of chapter 1, is a detailed account of what the king and his council of men decide to do to try to punish Vashti. They decide that she hasn't merely insulted the king in verse 16. She's also somehow offended every noble and every citizen throughout the empire with her defiance. These men are afraid that the other women across the land, inspired by her defiance, will start, quote, treating their own husbands in the same way that Vashti treated the king. How dare they? So they reassert their authority. They establish their ability to control and punish and exploit female bodies. First, they make an example of Vashti. Verse 19, they strip her of her title and they banish her from the kingdom and promise the king that he can just choose another wife more worthy than Vashti. Then they write an irrevocable law and they send it to every corner of the king's vast empire to reassure men everywhere. Verse 22, every man should be the ruler of his own home and should say whatever he pleases. Vashti acted courageously. She stood up for herself. She knew her worth as a human being and she refused to be treated as an object to entertain and please a group of men. To quote Brenda Salter McNeil, she said, in a time when women had absolutely no agency over their lives, Vashti took a stand. And Harriet Beecher Stowe called Vashti's disobedience the first stand for women's rights. Her reward for her courage and maintaining her dignity was to be silenced and to be exiled and to be shamed, blamed and punished as if she'd done something wrong. Banished forever, put back in a box, forced to wear a scarlet letter. And notice these men didn't just punish Vashti, they punished all women. This is the insidious, relentless oppression of patriarchy. For women under patriarchy, there are no good options. Women who go along with the system lose. Women who stand up and say no are removed. Women who speak out are labeled liars who just want to bring good men down. I think most of us would admit that patriarchy still exists and that we still live in it. Until 100 years ago, women were not allowed to vote on any elected representative in this country because they were women. We've had 46 presidents of the United States and none of them have been women. 
We've had 115 Supreme Court judges who have served on the courts, and only six of them have ever been women of 115. Among all Fortune 500 companies right now, only 8% are currently led by women. 8%. It is hard to be a woman. There are glass ceilings, there are barriers at every turn, every path is an uphill climb, and it starts early. The social pressures of school and the impact of social media is harming all kids, but it's particularly harming girls. Depression, anxiety, bullying, body image issues, disordered eating, problematic interactions with boys, these have always been parts of the world girls have navigated, treacherous waters. But now every young person with a phone is able to have a secretive, unceasing online life where the comparisons are continuous and the standards are unattainable and the comments constant. Paying attention to the comp, <laughs> for example, I just pay attention to the compliments that we often give boys and girls. How often boys hear praise over something they've done or who they are and how often girls hear compliments on their appearance, their clothes, their hair, their shoes. The pressure to be the most popular and the prettiest and the thinnest has always been there, but now it's like on steroids. And other note, these are other sobering numbers. According to the CDC, over half of women in the United States, over half of women in the United States have experienced sexual violence in their lifetime. Over half. One in three experienced sexual harassment in public. In public. This is the sound of patriarchy. Good thing we church folk aren't like that. Good thing we can rest easy knowing that what's happening out there on college campuses, in schools, in corporate spaces, within Oval Offices, isn't happening in our churches. In our churches, women are treated with dignity and given respect, not objectified, never silenced, not shamed. If only that were the truth. The truth, as uncomfortable as it is to admit, is that patriarchy is part of the church, too. For example, even when we preach passages like this one in Esther 1, we so often gloss over the ugliness of patriarchy. We don't spend much time on Queen Vashti. We skip right ahead to the part where her replacement, the Jewish Queen Esther, saves her people from genocide. We like that part. And when we talk about Abraham's wife Sarah having a child in her old age, we focus on the miracle son Isaac. We like that part. Skipping over the fact that Sarah first ordered her servant, Hagar, into her husband's bed to produce a child. Abraham, yeah, that same guy that we hold up as the father of monotheism went along with it, and we don't call it what it was. We don't call it sexual assault. What about David, the hero who took down Goliath? We like that part. The first king of Israel, we like that part. But when we actually acknowledge what happened between King David and Bathsheba, when her husband was away fighting a war, we rarely call it what it was. We say David committed adultery with Bathsheba. But it wasn't just adultery. It was sexual assault. And often, instead of naming these things as wrong, we skipped right past the brutal truth to get to the part where, in spite of all of that ugly, God does something good. We like that part. But these women were violated. They did not ask for their abuse. It was not their fault. It wasn't God's will. 
and it wasn't God's plan. They were victims, and it was wrong. It was wrong. And these women were survivors. When Sarah punished Hagar for having that baby, she was banished, Hagar was banished just like Vashti, to the wilderness. And God was with her in the wilderness. God took care of Hagar. So in the wilderness, she actually gave God a new name that meant something just to her. She said that God was the God who sees. She called God the God who sees her. God saw Hagar. And God sees every woman. God sees every woman, whether silenced or shamed or banished or blamed. You know, the book of Esther didn't have to start with the story of Vashti, right? But it does, because God saw Vashti. Her story is here. Her story is here for us to read and for us to deal with. We're supposed to remember and know who she is. If we ignore her oppression to get to the hope of Esther, then we continue to silence women and marginalize their experiences as less important. We're supposed to see her. And we're supposed to do better because we're God's people. People who see what God sees. And people who see who God sees. But often, instead of seeing and bringing jubilee freedom, some Christian cultures sing the song of patriarchy. And sometimes it's right there in the open. And it goes like this. One group leads and the other group follows. One group's in charge and the other submits. One group provides strength and the other supports. One group protects and the other satisfies needs. One group ventures out into the world and the other stays home. One gets to live into their calling and gifting without restriction and the other has boundaries and can only operate in certain designated areas. In their book, Burnout, Sisters Emily and, yeah, Emily and Amelia Nagoski describe this division. They say and argue that we are designating one group of people in society as the human givers and the other group of people in society they call the human beings. And the human givers are supposed to give their time and attention and affection and bodies willingly to the human beings. The human givers exist to be pretty and happy and calm and generous and attentive to the needs of others. Givers are not supposed to need anything themselves. If a giver doesn't obediently and sweetly hand over whatever a human being wants, then the giver must be punished or shamed or even destroyed. Guess which group women belong to. And I, I've seen this. Working for another church, I went to my first elder meeting, and right away I noticed the fact that there were no women sitting around the table at the elder meeting. There were important topics being discussed, and there were important decisions being made. But intelligent and wise and compassionate and faithful women were not involved because women were not invited, even though those decisions directly impacted the women who were being excluded from this meeting and conversation. How can a community take that stance and not also be communicating that to be a woman is to be less than? That women are second-class citizens. Living within an unchecked framework that sees women as helpers and men as leaders will eventually create a culture where men feel entitled to take whatever they want, jobs and responsibility and time and resources and ideas, while women feel that their value lies in satisfying those needs for a man. Here's the point in the sermon where I was going to talk about Christian purity culture. 
and some of the ways purity culture made shame and silence and isolation even worse for women. But that whole section got chopped in the editing process this week with our editing team. The consensus around this was that the topic is so important and so complex that it deserves a whole sermon of its own. So get excited for that to come down the road somewhere. <laughs> Patriarchy is plenty big enough topic for one morning. And you've felt it. If you're a man, I think you feel some of it. If you're a woman, you feel it all the time. I remember talking to a woman who shared that years back she'd given up her job as a nurse and made the choice to stay at home with the kids, which is a fine choice if it's actually a choice. But for her, it wasn't really a choice at all. Her husband got a new job in a different state, and she was taught, and she believed that it was her duty as his wife to support him in his new opportunity. He was, after all, the man, the spiritual leader of the house, and it was her job as a Christian wife to follow him. So what she wanted in terms of the move didn't come up because what she wanted didn't really matter that much. And Jubilee, I think, is an invitation in the name of Jesus and on his authority to release captives. We've talked about this. We've talked about how it's an invitation to clear debts and to restore to everyone what's been taken from them. And patriarchy is embedded in our culture as it's past, it's present, but I believe that we are called by Jesus to do better, to be governed by the intent that God had for us when God created us. So I want to end with a few words to specific groups. Men, here, this is what I want to say to you. By virtue of our sex, we have traditionally held almost all of the power, both inside and outside the church. I'm willing to bet that none of us have been told that we have less to offer as Christians or that we have less value because we're men. Yet that is a line that our sisters have hurt over and over and over again. We must actively work against that lie. Patriarchy is our problem. We can benefit from its privileges. We can protect it or we can dismantle it. I want to dismantle it. As men, as Christians, let us thoughtfully encourage women to be who God created them to be. Let's commit to prioritizing their voices over our own, whether it be in our small groups, in our marriages, in informal conversations. Women have been put back in a box in silence for too long. So we can hand over the microphone. We can relinquish the platform. We can get out of the way. And we can listen. We can listen if women are willing to share to the experiences that, that, that they've had, to the barriers that they've faced, to the messages that they've absorbed, to the wounds that they've endured inside and outside the church. Listening without judgment, listening without accusation, listening without being defensive, listening without making assumptions but listening with humility for ways that we can support women on their terms and in their timing. Women, if nothing else this morning, I want you to hear from a pastor standing at the front of a church that we men have messed this up. We have messed this up. We have done things that have hurt you, and we have created structures that have restricted you, and rather than take responsibility, we've defended ourselves and blamed you for being hurt. And we have used spiritual language to shame you. And we have told you to keep quiet about what you've experienced. 
so that we can keep up appearances and cling to credibility. If you've been part of a Christian community where you were limited because you were a woman, if you have been dismissed or silenced, if you have felt objectified, if you have felt tokenized, if you have felt like you've had to choose between being honest about your experiences and being connected to Christian community, if you've been forced to forgive when you were the one who was abused, if you've been made to feel less than because God made you a woman, then I want to say that I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because all of that is wrong. All of it is wrong. All of it is wrong. Your voice matters. You matter. And in this church, we will do everything we can to hear what you want to say, if and when you are ready to say it. Words have power, and deep healing can happen. Revelations can bring freedom. So when you choose to share, if you choose to share your story, it is a gift to all of us. Church Collective, we must do better than this. Growing up, I never heard a woman preach a sermon. I never took communion from a woman. <clears throat> Which means that for most of my life, I only heard from half the church. Which means I only heard from half the voice of God. When you are given opportunities, we, when you aren't given opportunities, we all suffer. So here at Haverhill Commons, we are committed to encouraging, compensating, and celebrating women to teach and to preach and to bear authority at all levels within the church. And I'm glad that my kids are growing up in a church where they learn about God from more voices than I ever learned. I'm glad we are here where we can celebrate Vashi's resistance to patriarchy as a spark of hope. I imagine it took every ounce of courage she could muster to defy Xerxes' ego and power and temper. And yet she did what was right, and she did what was right at great cost to herself. Jesus also did what was right, and he too was punished for it. He gave his life to save us all from a power that we couldn't defeat on our own. At great cost, Jesus puts songs like patriarchy to death to restore everyone infected and impacted by its cruelty and to empower us to protect and to take care of each other. Like, that's what we're supposed to do, is to protect and take care of each other. You know, when our family goes on walks around our neighborhood, I always stand in such a way so that my body is between my kids and any cars that might be passing by, right? Because if any car is going to hit someone, I'm going to make sure it hits me first before it hits them. And that's what I want for all of us. The Lord says in Isaiah 63, 5, I was amazed to see that no one intervened to help the oppressed. So I myself, God says, stepped in to save them with my strong right arm. I was amazed that no one was intervening, so I stepped in. Each of us has great strength, friends. We have physical strength, we have mental strength, we have emotional strength, we have spiritual strength, we all have a strength. My prayer is that we all might follow in the footsteps of Christ, that we would step in with whatever strength we have to protect women and to protect men and to protect children, any and all who are vulnerable to shield each other from harm. I want to reiterate the invitation Marcus gave last week. 
If there are things in your story that you no longer want to keep to yourself, if you have felt silenced or shamed and now want to share, know that our staff team is willing to listen to you without judgment and without condemnation. If not us, then we will do everything we can to connect you with someone else that you feel like you can talk to and that you feel safe with. You are not invisible. You are seen. You are not silenced. You are heard. You are not shamed. You are treasured. And I'm so glad you're here. Let's pray.